0: The full potential of your brain to work after it's had seven or eight hours of good quality sleep. If that's shortened or disturbed in any way, then it's like you're operating on an IQ loss of five to eight points the next day. I've talked about these six different ways of thinking. If we actually use all of them, then, then we're using our fully integrated brain power. We never question our thinking because we think it's absolutely true. The more we repeat something, the more fixed it becomes in our brain. Welcome to the Debunking Your Growth Mindset podcast with Sean Mc. McCa- Cambridge. In this podcast, we will unpack practical ways to help you grow and build on your current mindset and challenge old habits so you can see the potential that's within us all and learn how to get out of your own way.
1: Thanks so much for joining us here today. We're fortunate enough to have Dr. Tara Swart all the way from London joining us talking to us about the topic that is peak brain performance Super interesting. There's a bunch of really simple takeaways about how to get the most out of yourself and her quest and her passion, uh, similar to mine, is uh, helping people reach their full potential. So many key takeaways, really simple takeaways right to the very end of the podcast. So we've broken that into two segments, part one, part two, but yeah, just some of the simple takeaways that... uh, uh, discuss in today's uh, podcast are just so easy to get your head around and grapple and I've got full confidence that people that listen to it will get a lot of value. So thanks again for joining us and I really hope you enjoy. So Tara, thanks very much for joining us here today. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time. Good that you're in Sydney all the way coming from uh, from London, but uh, just a brief intro for the listeners. Tara's a neuroscientist and a former psychiatric doctor. You're a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan and visiting senior lecturer at King's College in London. You're an executive advisor or coach to some of the world's most respected leaders in media and business. Successful author. First book that I'm I'm familiar with is the award-winning Neuroscience for Leadership. Uh, You've now gone on to publish The Source, which is a proven toolkit for unlocking your mind and reaching our full potential. And in 2016, you uh, reached the unique uh, status of becoming the world's first neuroscientist uh, in residence at the uh, Corinthia Hotel in London, which is, uh, which is remarkable. So I really appreciate you joining us. I had a wonderful time at the conference we had last Tuesday in Brisbane. So uh, thanks so much for, for joining us.
0: Thanks so much, Sean. It's really exciting for me to be doing a podcast in Australia, because as you know, I'm here partly um, promoting my new book, which came out with Penguin Australia in March. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to to discuss everything with you. And as you can see, I'd like to do different things with neuroscience. So hopefully that will come out in our conversation.
1: Absolutely. So we're here to talk about uh, peak brain performance. So I think that's a topic that really uh, is interesting to uh, a bunch of people, me included. So I'm going to jump straight into it and uh, come on with uh, some questions that I think you can, uh, you know, add some really good insights to. So the first one is you nominate five carriers for positively impacting brain performance. Succinctly, are you able to tell us uh, why these items are important to operate at our peak and any simple tips for each? So just for the listeners, the five. Areas sleep, nutrition, hydration, oxygen, and meditation. So over to you, Tara.
0: Thanks, Sean. Um, yeah, I like to think of them. Um, I I almost like to think of ourselves as like an amazing machine, like your, you know, your dream car and how you would treat it. So I call those five things rest, fuel, hydrate, oxygenate, and simplify. And so rest, as you've quite rightly pointed out, is is sleep for humans. Um, 98 to 99% of human brains need to sleep for seven to nine hours. Now, most of the people that I work with, people like you, um, are convinced that they're in that one to 2% that can get by with four to five hours of sleep. Um, The best way to know what the right number is for you is if you naturally wake up at the weekend at the same time that you have to wake up during the week, then you're probably getting enough sleep. If you need to lie in, if you feel like having naps, or if like some of my coaching clients, you say, I could sleep all weekend if you let me, then you're probably not getting enough sleep. So basically, the important things for sleep are to go to bed at a regular time, to not have your devices um, either close to you or or be looking at them right before bed because the blue light affects your pineal gland, which releases the hormone melatonin that helps you fall asleep, to try to get good quality and the right length of sleep for you without being disturbed, and to also have a consistent waking time. When you're in bed, the best position to sleep in is on your side. So your left or your right rather than your front or your back. And the reason for that is that there's some Nobel science prize winning research that shows a specific cleansing system of the brain. It's called the glymphatic system and it forces toxins out of the brain overnight by flushing them through the liquid around the brain and these are the toxins that build up to become the pathology in diseases like alzheimer's and other forms of dementia so that's that's the long term reason that sleep is so important but short term if we have disturbed sleep it actually affects the operating power of our brain the next day so you know we like to talk about peak performance and fullest potential so you have a full potential of your brain to work after it's had seven or eight hours of good quality sleep. If that's shortened or disturbed in any way, then it's like you're operating on an IQ loss of five to eight points the next day. Now, someone like you, Sean, could carry on doing your job perfectly well, even if it felt like five to eight IQ points less. That's, you know, For me, I really feel that when I'm jet lagged. But if your entire night's sleep is disturbed and that could be a night flight, it could be a sick child, it could be because you're not feeling well physically, then in population norm studies we see a standard deviation drop in IQ. so that's that's like having a learning disability. So short term, it's really important. I've talked about sleep the most because as a neuroscientist, I feel like that's the most important pillar in terms of brain health, but the other ones are obviously important. So nutrition, The brain is actually only weighs two or three kilos. It's a tiny proportion of our body weight, but it's really energy hungry and it uses up 25 to 30% of the breakdown products of what we eat. So from a brain point of view, you need to eat regularly and incorporate as many brain-friendly foods as you can. So the good fats like the oily fish, avocado, olive oil, coconut oil, and then the hydrating foods like melon and cucumber, and the foods with the micronutrients like nuts and seeds and leafy green vegetables. Um, I mentioned hydrating foods because we actually get more hydration from food than just from water. But the, um, the stats for hydration are half a liter of water for every 15 kilos of your body weight per day. And I know, Sean, that since you met me last week, you've (laughs) apparently been increasing your water consumption. Um, Absolutely. So as you know, at first, that can feel a bit like you're in the bathroom much more than than before. (laughs) Um, But you'll soon, you know, your body will soon get used to the extra water and I'm sure that you'll notice a difference in your focus and concentration and maybe even your memory after about two weeks you know, it's a little bit like, like I said about your car, you wouldn't drive your car to work without checking the water and, and the, you know, the petrol, but you'd come to work often grabbing a coffee and not having drunk enough water. So that's, that's sort of the point there. Um, Oxygenation is exercise. So that's from a brain point of view, it's interesting. It's mostly about being mobile rather than sedentary. So it's getting that 10,000 steps a day or, you know, even 5,000, but just, you know, not being sort of sat down most of the day at a desk, um, trying to get a standing desk or just walking around during the day. And then, you know, really for that extra edge, it's doing uh, about 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per week. There are all sorts of different benefits of doing weight-bearing exercise or, you know, sort of um, social things like table tennis. They have all different benefits. So Depending on what you need, you might want a social point to the exercise that you're doing, or you may want to build on the the weights or the aerobic, but the aerobic is is very important for the brain. Finding something that you enjoy has an additional benefit for the brain. So we then release this growth factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps us to grow new cells in the memory part of the brain. So the good news for people that aren't very mobile at the moment is that if you start doing aerobic exercise, you actually increase your cell turnover in the brain by up to 30%. Oh, and actually on that point, the, the, uh, the thing to do in nutrition to increase that cell turnover is to eat um, foods that are as dark skinned as possible. So like blueberries rather than other berries, dark beans rather than chickpeas, and chocolate that's over 85% dark chocolate. And then finally, I talk about simplification. This is both mindfulness, which I think we're going to go into in in more detail later, but also um, choice reduction. So every time you decide something, you use up a bit of your brain power. So the more you can simplify like your morning routine, it's the reason that Mark Zuckerberg wears the same clothes every day, the more brain power you keep for later in the day. So hopefully that's enough about the basics i know you've got lots of specific questions
1: yeah, that's fantastic uh and i think you you just sort of talk uh, and we'll, maybe we'll pick that up later because i think we're going to sort of talk about that uh brain capacity and every time you know you have to make chores and use brain power you're essentially using some of that capacity and therefore reducing that capacity so uh to that last point and simplifying things i guess you're you're maintaining as much as uh, much capacity as possible as you go into the day so I think uh, that was something that really stood out to me uh, last Tuesday.
0: Yeah, I think especially for people like you, there is this feeling that we're invincible, that we can keep going, you know, doing, getting done everything that we need to. And, you know, although that's a in one way, that's a good mindset to have, although, you know, you don't want to push yourself to the point of burnout. It's also important to understand that your cognitive power is this bucket of resources that you're slowly using during the day so that you can structure your day to reach your fullest potential.
1: Yeah, no, it uh, really sort of struck home. So I think that's a a great point. So we're going to go out one sort of reasonably heavy set of questions. And I think you provide some really simplistic answers to uh, to those uh, five key items. But can you talk to us a little bit about fully integrated brain power and six ways of thinking?
0: Yeah. So this is something I've been developing over many years, but you mentioned neuroscience for leadership and brain agility would have been mentioned there in its early sort of iteration. And, you know, a few years later, I've written the source and I feel like I've really, really nailed those six ways of thinking. And actually the order that they appear in is is important because of the way that we tend to value certain pathways in our brain over other ones. So, you know, what I'm getting at really is that in, in modern society, we value logic and analysis over everything else um and things like emotions and intuition have actually until fairly recently been seen as a weakness <clears throat> um so what i'm saying is that that you know I've, I've talked about these six different ways of thinking and suggested that most of us have strengths and you know comfort zone in two or three of those if we actually use all of them then then we're using our fully integrated brain power it's a bit like If somebody asked you to build a brick wall and you did it by yourself, how long and how much effort that would take you? But if you asked four or five friends to help you, how much quicker and easier and more enjoyable it would be? That's fully integrated brain power. So the six things are mastering your emotions. And I've purposely put that at number one because I feel like emotional mastery has been so undervalued until the science has really backed up how much emotions bias all of our decision-making. So it just, it makes it so much more important to feel like you have the right amount of emotion. We all know that that too much isn't good, especially in the workplace, but you don't want none. And so it's about being able to master your emotions rather than being seen as emotional, which I think was the issue that sort of held us back from that. So master your emotions, trust your gut, that's intuition. And I was specifically thinking, Sean, in terms of what you do, I would guess that you actually trust your gut a lot. So I would, you know, my guess would be that that pathway is really developed in your brain. Um, But for a lot of people, intuition seems like something that's not tangible. And so we might be afraid to use it at work because how do you explain a decision at work that you've made on trusting your gut rather than logic? Um, I really see that changing. I see. The most successful leaders now are, you know, definitely feeling comfortable relying on their intuition. And as I think you know, I I write in the book that journaling and reading back over your decision making process is a really great way to hone your intuition. The third one is know yourself, which is the brain body connection. So it's, it is about reading body language in others, but most importantly, it's about listening to messages from your own body. Now, at an extreme during the global financial crisis, this showed up for me and my clients with people saying, I was getting chest pain for months, but I didn't think I'd have a heart attack. And, you know, I I have coached too many men and women in their 40s to 60s that had stress induced heart attacks. That's extreme. On the other hand, you know, we do need to listen to the butterflies in our stomach, the little hairs on our arms standing on end and things like nervous laughter and blushing and understand what all of that means in in terms of this integrated whole that we have. So those three things are interesting because with the rise of AI and machine learning now, empathy, intuition, and that sort of physicality that we have as humans is going to be even more important than it has been in the past. We've always said we should be better at that. But I think now with machines making decisions, you know, a billion times faster than us, we need to look at well, what can we do as humans that still gives us that edge? So um, number four on the list is logic. So there's absolutely a place for being technically strong for everything that you've learned at school, at uni, on graduate training. But I would guess that everybody that's listening to your podcast is more than good enough at logic. Um, so I mostly talk about how that interacts with, with emotion so that you can you know, access your logic in the best possible way. Number five is about motivation, which is staying resilient to reach your goals. It's both about not giving up too soon when the going gets tough, when you feel tired, when you feel like you're close to burnout, but it's also about understanding when you've pushed yourself too far and how to recoup your resilience at those times. So you need to stay motivated with all the empathy, the logic, the intuition to be able to create the real life outcomes that you want. And that's number six, which is creativity. But it's a different twist on creativity because there's a whole generation of people who believed that they are not creative because they were told at school that they're not good at art. Creativity is not limited to art or the film industry or music. It's about using all of your brain power to design the life that you wish to live um, and to feel much more like you're the driver on the journey of life rather than the passenger and that life happens to you. So you can kind of see how, you know, if you get that resilience and motivation piece right, that you can feel a lot more in control of what, of what happens because one thing that I think we're all agreed upon is that the rate of change of what's going on in the world at work and in life is 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 exponential. And, that is quite tough for the brain to deal with. So maintaining that agility that I've just talked about between the six ways of thinking, but also the adaptability to what's going on around us is really key to... getting the most out of our brain power.
1: Well, again, you've done a wonderful job of uh, explaining in very simplistic terms a complex uh, matter. So I think uh, some really good takeaways there. So I want to sort of change the pace a little bit of the podcast and go to a few quick questions and quick uh, short answers, uh, just sort of break things up a little bit. So uh, I'm going to file them away and then just come with your immediate response. So why should I not have caffeine after 12 o'clock every day?
0: Um, okay. So the quarter life of caffeine is 12 hours. So 12 hours after you have your last caffeine, a quarter of that is still buzzing around your brain. So I actually used to drink caffeine. I used to allow it until 2, 2 p.m. <laughs> you have said 12. I, I I now try to finish it at 10, 10 wow. a.m. because... I'm in bed at 10 p.m. and I don't want a quarter of that caffeine going around my brain.
1: Yeah, so the, the main impact is the, the detrimental effect it can have on the quality of our sleep because it's still functioning in our brain yeah. at that point in time.
0: Yeah, yeah, gotcha. absolutely.
1: Perfect. So what are the benefits of cold showers, as unpleasant as they may be? What are the benefits? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, well, ideally, you um, the, the, the research that is – The sort of most ideal is an ice bath followed by a sauna, but because that's not really practical for most (laughs) of us. There's some research research from Finland that shows um, the benefits of a 15, 30 or 60 second cold shower. And that is that um, because it has a really beneficial effect on our immunity, it reduces the number of colds and flus that we get in the winter and if you do get a cold, it reduces the number of days that it lasts. So even the fifteen second is, is quite significant. And it's important though to do the cold shower first and then warm up afterwards. A lot of my clients say, yeah, I turn the shower cold at the end. But what you want to do is shock your body and then show your body that you can control your recovery afterwards.
1: So some form of uh, inoculation as you put it last week? Exactly. Perfect, gotcha. Now, another one that's often uh, in my life and maybe shouldn't be as much, but uh, why should I not have too much alcohol, and in particular, within two hours of bedtime?
0: Yes, I think the timing is really important here. And also, there's another effect that's quite interesting. One of my hedge fund clients described it as binary, which is that even small amounts of alcohol have a really disproportionate effect on our sleep. So most of my clients don't drink Monday to Thursday and then whatever they do, you know, however much they want to drink, it's more manageable over the weekend. And that's because any consumption within two hours of bedtime, so that's eating or drinking, means that your body can't go into recovery during sleep until you've digested and dealt with, you know, any toxins. And unfortunately, alcohol is a neurotoxin. So basically, even if you don't drink alcohol, but you eat late, I can see that when I do heart rate variability testing on clients that it's disturbing their sleep for up to two hours. So it's best to finish eating two hours before bedtime. If you're going to drink, start earlier and finish two hours before bedtime. And if you are going to have a celebration or a social event, then to try to have that on a day that you're not working the next morning so that you can manage the effect on your sleep.
1: And I think the other quick takeaway on that that you touched on last week is generally when we have too much to drink, the next day our, our eating choices suffer dramatically as well.
0: It's so true. I never <laughs> realized that until I did food and drink diaries with my clients. And it's it's the breakfast, the day after drinking is always just so, it's actually funny, but it's, it's literally like a fry up because um, that's what you crave. Um, if you know that though, and you say, okay, the next day I'm going to have, like, you know, the green juice and the, the turmeric shot or whatever, then it's maybe a bit more forgivable. But you definitely don't feel like having that, do you?
1: No, generally not. Generally not. So no. wh- why should I not look at my phone during the night?
0: Mm. Um, so the phone or, or any devices, similar devices, emit blue light. And blue light mimics natural daylight in terms of how our brain views it. And there's a gland called the pineal gland that releases melatonin one hour before we fall asleep. And the blue light disrupts that process. So there are now these, there's an app called Flux and on iPhones there's a a sunset to sunrise setting that makes the light on your devices more orange. So that's, that's helpful. Um, but it's partly also because then your brain is buzzing with the latest thing that you've read, the latest problem that you have to deal with tomorrow morning. Um, So it's about really having that sort of calm down period before bedtime. And I know that a lot of my clients work across time zones. It can be tempting to look at your phone, but even just looking at your phone to check the time for one or two seconds the effect of the blue light on your brain is, is actually disastrous, not just in waking you up at that moment, but it disrupts a lot of the hormones in our bodies. Um, and there's even evidence that it can increase your cancer risk because for, for, through the same process that shift workers have increased cancer risk. So nurses and air stewards have a higher risk of cancer because they don't sleep in keeping with the light-dark cycle, and that has an effect on our hormones.
1: Wow, fascinating insights there. So a good mm. time and the reminder of why we should, uh, you know, uh, not go down that path. That choice of checking the phone uh, in the middle of the night. So that's a good one. Why should why should people? What are the positive impacts of practicing some form of gratitude?
0: Hmm. Well, it's it's so easy to go through life, even if you're very successful and high achieving and not actually pause to think about what you've accomplished and constantly be on the next thing that you have to achieve. And the reason for that is that to ensure our survival as a species, which we've done pretty well, our brains are geared to avoid loss more than they are to seek a reward. So we focus on the negatives about twice as much as we focus on the positives. So the practice of gratitude, and I just do a list 10 things i'm grateful for i just write them down into my journal it just brings to the front of the mind the more positive abundant form of thinking and in the research that i've done i found that over time that list moves away from being you know grateful for the the things or the people that you have in your life like the external things and it it develops or evolves more into being about intrinsic capabilities that you're grateful for things like my resilience my creativity you know my my adaptability my uh, my ability to solve problems and once you really acknowledge that to yourself you start to feel like okay if something bad happens to me and you know anything can come from left field for all of us at any time i know more i'm more aware of the intrinsic capabilities that i have to deal with that so that when there's a crisis you're not left suddenly grappling for what to do you actually think well, I know that I can solve a difficult problem. I know that I can get through this even if it takes quite a long time to get sorted out. I know I can think outside of the box about this issue. And that's that's really, really helpful.
1: Oh, fantastic. And uh, this last one, I, th- I found this very interesting last week. So you talk about this notion of uh, improving 10 things by 1% versus one thing by 10%. Talk to us about that.
0: I think we've all done those New Year's resolutions <laughs> where we promised to change. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, yeah. So either something really big or just, you know, too many things that require a lot of brain power to change. So, you know, I would say mm. that in the last week, you've already told me that you started drinking more water. That is a small thing that you can do that's not going to really tax your brain power. And that means that you can do quite a few things at the same time. If you told me that you were going to learn a new language, start working out five times a week, you know, read 12 books, I would kind of know that you're probably not going to do all those things, or not soon anyway. But if you do like you've done, you drink drink a bit more water and increase that over a two week period. Start going to bed half an hour earlier. Start walking around a bit, you know, increasing your steps by a thousand, then two thousand and you know, up to five thousand per day. If you do lots of small things like that, the cumulative effect is actually very, it's what we call global benefits in the brain. So it's lots of little things that add up to being more than just the sum of what they are. And what that does is it actually makes your brain more plastic and flexible. And that's what we're all after, you know, in this sort of between the ages of 25 and 65, what we should be focusing on is keeping our brain as flexible and, you know, in scientific speak, plastic as possible. So it'd be amazing to take on a new learning, like a language, but obviously that's going to take some hours away from the day job and the family, which, you know, it's worth doing when you've got the bandwidth. When you don't so much, try to bring in as many of these little tweaks as you can to keep your brain flexible. Again, a little bit like with the gratitude list, it just means that if something comes from left field, you will be that much more able to cope with it because you've been doing things to change and grow already so your brain kind of knows what that feels like
1: yeah absolutely and i think i'm just going to pick up on some of those uh, last comments and referring back to the session last week that we had i i believe you said that physically as athletes they tend to mature late 20s early 30s but the brain sort of operates getting up to its peak towards, I think, 65. Is that somewhat correct?
0: Yeah. So the ability for us to change and grow is very much its potential that's there from 25 to 65. You have to start by your late 30s to early 40s if you want to prevent some of the decline that starts happening around 65 to 70 and onwards.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, no, fascinating. So I think that's sort of interesting. I think maybe, you know, my my best guess would have been that would have been somewhat earlier. And I think one of the comments you made mm. uh, within that, I believe, last week was you've sort of got the benefit of, you know, that brain function, but you've also got the the added benefit of wisdom mm. at that stage of life that you don't have earlier in life, right?
0: Yeah, and that's partly because we build up wisdom and experience from life lessons. And, you know, obviously that builds up more over time. But it's also because you know there are big changes in the brain, sort of from naught till two, you know, there's massive amounts of growth. There's a lot of pruning and sophistication of the brain around the teenage years. That's the reason that teenagers need to sleep so much, because that happens mostly overnight. Around 65, there's a different type of super sophistication of the brain. Unfortunately, what we tend to focus on is, you know, that the sequential memory decreases. So that's kind of pruned off. And so our ability to remember the order that things happened in it does decrease, but so many people, and this happened last Tuesday, didn't it? Somebody said, "Oh, I'm becoming more forgetful. What can I do about that?" And I immediately said, "What goes along with that thought? I'm becoming more forgetful is I'm going to get dementia later in life. I'm going to end up like my mum or my dad, um, who you know, or my granny who's become more more forgetful." And rather than get anxious about that. Let's focus on what's becoming, you know, even more streamlined in the brain, which is this access to our wisdom and intuition, because we have basically all outsourced our memories to our, our devices. So actually just get comfortable with the fact that you've done that. Keep a really good diary, keep notes and, and focus on what's actually getting better about your brain rather than what's getting worse.
1: Absolutely. Great, great point. So, next question is, I I think it's a complex one, Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it'd be interesting to get your sort of simplified uh, take on that. So, can you share uh, what self-limiting behaviors or thoughts are and maybe the impact or the power of self-talk within that? And how does one address this at -hmm. a high level?
0: That's definitely a complex subject, (laughs) but (laughs) Um, it's important. It's really important to acknowledge it because I, you know one of my favorite phrases is we don't know what we don't know. Yes. And if you know somebody like you highlighting this to a large number of people will make people think twice, and what, pe- what we all need to do is called metacognition, which is thinking about our thinking. We never question our thinking because we think it's absolutely true. Our filters and our perception on life we take as you know a hundred percent solidly true, and we rarely question it. And so when we have negative self-talk, it's very easy to get sucked into that. And it's very difficult to talk ourselves out of that spiral. That's when you need you know, a close friend, a coach, a therapist to help you out of that kind of self-limiting spiral. So let's talk specifically about self-talk. So we all have narratives that we've built up over life. And the longer that they've been there, The thicker the pathway they are in the brain. Because, in terms of neuroplasticity in the brain, the more we repeat something or the longer time that it's been there and the more it's associated with a strong emotion, the more fixed it becomes in our brain. So, you know, any of those things that your parents or teachers might have said to you when you were a child that you've kept thinking in your mind has a disproportionate effect on what you think you're capable of or, you know, how you behave in your most important relationships actually, because it's so complex, I will say that in the book, there are four entire chapters of exercises that actually work through old patterns of thinking and behavior. And then how you can overwrite those with new affirmations, gratitude lists, mantras that we use to, you know, induce positive self-talk. One of the um, things that I write about is a very ancient Buddhist belief, which is now totally backed up by neuroscience, which is, immediately replace a negative thought with a positive thought. Because of this wiring in our brain, if we have a negative thought and we just let it stay there, then it becomes a bigger thing than it should. But if we try to immediately replace it with a positive catchphrase that we've already identified, then we can actually reduce the negative effect of those sorts of thoughts. I have an exercise um, in the book, which I think we did last Tuesday, called Ghosts in the Executive Suite. And that basically means that childhood roles and boundaries and secrets become entrenched in our brain and then they play out at work and we don't even realize it. So it's really about raising that from non-conscious to conscious because that's when you can do something about it. So what can you do if you identify that you have, you know, certain self-limiting beliefs or behaviors? You can focus focus on your own past successes. Whenever you think, oh, you know, I can't do that. I'm not going to be able to get that. Think about a time that you've done something like that before. And what I also do in my journal is write a list of, of my golden moments or my successes or things that I'm proud of so that I can go and look at that list if I you know, really feel like I can't achieve something at the moment. If you look at that list and think, okay, I'm coming up to a challenge now that I have never personally been through before then look for somebody that you admire, a role model. It can be like someone in business, it can be someone from your family, or it can be a historical or even a fictional character that has achieved something that that you really want to achieve. And just knowing that it's possible will help you to feel like you can also achieve it. So the classic example of this is Roger Bannister being the first human to run um, a mile in less than four minutes. As soon as he did that, uh, seven or eight other people did it in the next two months. So you know, knowing that something was possible allowed people to achieve it themselves. And then I've, I've already mentioned the other one, which is that if you have a specific insecurity that keeps cropping up for you, think of a catchphrase that can, you know, is the opposite of that. So if it's something like, you know, I'm not experienced enough, then the catchphrase can be, I'm experienced at, and, you know, identify some, some things that you're experienced at and, and just, always use that catchphrase when you have that thought and then it, it goes back to everything goes back to the rest fuel hydrate oxygenate and simplify your way.
1: thanks again for listening to part one of the Pink brand performance podcast don't forget to tune in for part two which you can find in the same locations so thanks again for joining us